In him we move and have our being. Uh, He he gave us life. He sustains our life. Uh, And so we're in his secure hands, our life, and we give him glory and honor for that. This morning, Ephesians chapter 16, the third sermon in this series from these verses. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 16. Power and provision for spiritual batter, battle, part 3. Ephesians six seventeen reads, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. After 20 long years of combat, the U.S. military is pulling out of Afghanistan. Our military is deploying, redeploying its troops and weaponry, and it has also abandoned the base, the air base that it had constructed in that Middle Eastern country. For the United States of America, the war is over in Afghanistan. Unlike our nation, for us as believers, the war is not over. We're still engaged in spiritual warfare. Christians remain on active duty. We're still on the battlefield. Our orders from our commander-in-chief has not changed. We're to put on the whole armor of God. In fact, it is to be permanently in place. We're to keep it on. And we're to stand firm on the battlefield. As we've been studying this passage on the believer's warfare, we looked at the uh, equipment uh, that the Lord has provided for us, enabling us to comply with his commands. Interestingly, in Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, the Apostle Paul writes, But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. How does he protect us from the evil one? Satan. He does it by the spiritual armor that he has given to us. This morning, we're going to continue our look at that armor that has been provided for us. We're going to look at the last two pieces that are essential for us to be able to do the thing that God has called us to do in our warfare against Satan. Stand firm. We'll call the first point, our heading, salvation. Salvation, verse 17, the A portion. Of course, as we've seen, Paul uses physical armor as a, of a Roman soldier as an analogy for spiritual armor. Now, let me just tell you about the uh, Roman soldier's helmet that Paul saw and what he observed and how it can be applied in, in an analogous way to our spiritual armor. Now, the helmet of the Roman soldier was made of bronze. It also had cheek pieces. The helmet protected the soldier um, from injury incurred by an enemy combatant's broad sword, which could split the skull or decapitate a soldier. The head of the opposing soldier could be lost, and a Roman soldier knew it. We, too, need protection from Satan's spiritual blows, aimed for our security in Christ. That's what Satan aims at. 
He wants to undermine our assurance that we are uh, Christ. He wants to undermine our uh, security in Christ. He wants to undermine our understanding that we belong to the Lord. So the text tells us to take up the helmet of salvation. Let me hasten to add, when it says take up the helmet of salvation, Paul isn't saying that we are to get saved. The believers to whom Paul wrote were already saved. The epistle of Ephesians indicates this fact. As you read through this book, all six chapters, it's obvious that the message is to those who already belong to Christ. In fact, only Christians can put on the whole armor of God. Only Christians can be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Only Christians, these truths apply to us who are in the family of God. In fact, when Paul writes here, take up or take the helmet of salvation, that word take translates a Greek word that suggests to us urgency. Urgency. We have no time to lose. We need the protection that it provides. Satan, I mentioned a moment ago about Satan wants to undermine us in our confidence in our salvation. But do understand that Satan cannot take our salvation from us. He can't cause us to lose it. He is utterly powerless to do anything about our saving relationship to Jesus Christ. We are the elect of God. If you're a child of God, you're elect by him in eternity past. You belong to him, and he has an eternal destiny for you, and Satan can't do a thing to alter that. We're secure. We're absolutely, utterly secure in the hands of God the Father and God the Son. In fact, Jesus points this out in John chapter 10, in verses 28 and 29. His sheep are firmly in his grip and in the Father's grip. There are no supernatural beings, whether individually or in the aggregate, that can do anything about our security. They can't strip our souls from Christ. In fact, for them to take us from Christ, they'd have to be stronger than Christ. They'd have to be stronger than God the Father. And there is no being anywhere stronger than either person of the Trinity. Therefore, our security is a, may I put it like this, a soteriological fact. It's a fact of doctrinal salvation, the doctrine of salvation. We need this understanding. We need to, be, to understand that Satan aims his blows at our security and our assurance, but he can't do a thing about our salvation. However, it is doubtful that a Christian who has doubts about his salvation, will be an effective fighter on the battlefield. So we need to be certain of it. So in the midst of this conflict with these supernatural enemies of ours, God wants us to be secure in the fact that he is able and willing to bring us home to heaven. You can be assured you're going to get there. You can be absolutely certain that you're going to go and be with Christ. Salvation is an important issue. Anybody who's saved understands that. 
Let's explore how salvation works in the life of the believer. We need to comprehend how it unfolds in our experience. It's expressed first, let me put it like this, in three tenses. And it also is expressed in three aspects. And the tenses and the aspects correlate. The tenses are past, present, and future. The aspects are justification, sanctification, and glorification. And each tense and aspect addresses our relationship to sin. Each aspect of our salvation addresses the issue of sin, just as do the tenses. Let's look at the past tense. It refers, of course, to the saving action of God in our life in the past. In the past act of God, what did he do? He justified us. We're justified by faith alone in the finished work of Christ alone. Let me pause here and say something. I saw something that I read online from a Christian brother. Uh, He mentioned the fact that some Christians, I suppose even many, think that heaven is merited. Somehow you merit or earn salvation. Nothing can be further from the truth. We're justified by faith alone in the finished work of Christ alone. Nothing we do, nothing we contribute. Justification, that is being justified, means that we have been declared righteous by the judge of the entire universe. God, who is holy, perfectly righteous, has declared us just. You see... It is his law that was broken. It was he against whom we sinned. It is therefore his perfect moral standard which we broke. But it's that same God who declares the one who has faith in Jesus Christ alone justified. How could he justify us? He justified us because he clothed us in Christ's righteousness. He took Christ's righteousness, his active obedience in life. He perfectly obeyed the Father, and he took that righteousness and gave it to us. He put it on our account. We have his righteousness. He lived the life that we couldn't live so that we'd have that righteousness that we couldn't achieve. To put it another way, we have the imputed righteousness of Christ. I've already said it. I'll say it again. It's been credited to our spiritual account. On our account, there in heaven, you can see by your name as a child of God, righteous. With respect to sin, how does justification deal with sin? Well, the penalty has been paid. It's been paid for by the finished work of Christ on the cross. He he dealt with it perfectly, completely. And so the sin, our sin is gone. Now, here's something about justification. Justification, there was a present work, a past work rather, in our life that God declared us righteous. It has future significance. Future significance. How is that? Uh, We never have to worry about judgment day. You've all heard about that awful day out there, Judgment Day, that people fear because they know Judgment Day is coming with all the terrors of standing before Holy God, knowing, I don't know if I'm going to get in or not. For the justified man or woman, the issue of 
Judgment Day no longer matters. It's out of our, not in our future. Romans 8, chapter 1, there is no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus, right? Somebody's going to say, well, yeah, um, I'm justified. God sees me as righteous because of Christ's righteousness, but I still have this problem with sin. Um, I still fail. I um, don't uh, live up to the righteous standing that I have. Um, I, I know that, that that's a problem. The Protestant reformer Martin Luther coined a Latin phrase to express our experience as justified uh, people who still battle personal sin. That Latin phrase, simul usus et peccator, simultaneously justified and sinful. Isn't that you? You're at the same time justified. You've been declared righteous by God, but yet you still sin. You know that's true. And let me just throw this in. Your sin doesn't take away from the fact that you legally stand before God justified. That's good news, isn't it? God doesn't say, whoops, you've sinned one time too many. I am going to rescind my justification. No, you're still declared righteous. It's Christ's righteousness that we've been clothed with, not our own. He paid the penalty. The penalty is removed. So, simultaneously, we are justified, but yet we sin. So, how do we deal with that? Well, that's where the second aspect of salvation comes in. That's where the present tense of salvation comes in. Uh, The aspect of sanctification and the present tense is this. We are being saved, not from the penalty because that's already been accomplished. We are being saved in the present from sin's power. Here's the deal. If you're a Christian... And you've been a Christian for a while. You realize that you don't sin as much as you used to. Now, (laughs) you ought to say amen if that's true. (laughs) Amen. You are seeing that the power of sin practically doesn't have the grip that it had because the power of sin has been broken in your life. Christ's death on the cross broke the back of sin. It's power in the life. It no longer has dominion or tyranny over us. We're dead to sin because we died with Christ, Romans 6. We're no longer slaves to sin. We were before salvation, but now we are slaves to Christ. Now we're alive to God. Now we can present our bodies to God rather than to sin because the power of sin has been broken. And all of that is sanctification. We are obedient to Christ. We become more like him, the sinless one. Uh, Let me throw a little something in there for you. Um, The reality is that the closer you get to Christ, the... um, more like him you become, the more you began to see your sinfulness. That's an unusual reality, but it is. It is. Paul, he said he had not attained. Remember in Philippians 3, he said, I pressed toward the mark for the prize of the upward call of God 
in Christ. What was he talking about in Philippians 3.14? He's talking, like, talking about being Christ-like. He still was pressing on. He hadn't attained to it. Well, the final tense is the future tense of salvation. The aspect is glorification. This is, this is when we will totally be free from sin. We'll be unable to sin ever again. Imagine the thought. Unable to sin. You clip a bird's wings and it cannot fly. One day we're not going to be able to sin like a wingless bird. We'll be fully conformed to the image of Christ. Perfectly sinless son of God. Uh, we'll have the perfection of finite redeemed beings we will not be able capable of sin adam could sin he did sin in heaven we will not be able to sin none of this will be repeated we will be perfectly like our lord jesus christ not only that we will no longer be in the presence of sin and this is god's design and purpose for his children let me let me get, you know i don't i'm i'm like you i hear people always talking about purpose destiny i hear this all the time and my my first thought is wait 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 if you're a christian here's your destiny it has nothing to do with some great achievement in this life it has everything to do with what god has saved you for you need to get that don't let people in their lack of understanding what the Bible teaches about us or let the world influence you about this idea of purpose and destiny and all that stuff. Understand what the Bible says about our destiny as believers. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7, we were predestined to eternal glorification. In eternity past, the reason God elected us is that he wanted us in eternity future to be glorified. That's the point. Second Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 14, it says this, It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we were summoned to Christ through the gospel preaching. The Thessalonians were and you were. That you may gain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does this mean? We will eternally reflect the glory of Jesus Christ. That's what God is up to in our life. That's our destiny. This is our predestined destiny. We'll have the glory of Christ for all eternity. We're going to be conformed to Christ. We'll look like Christ, act like Christ, think, think like Christ. We'll reflect Christ in all his glory, in all the glory that finite beings can reflect of the Son of God. For all eternity, we're going to reflect that glory. That's why we are saved. Ultimately, it's eternal stuff. Look in the mirror in the morning, or even this afternoon, and say, I'm destined for eternal glory to reflect Christ forever. Says who we are. I'm going to tell you something. The devil knows that too. He knows what God has in plan, in store, and has planned for us. This salvation is certain, utterly certain. First Thessalonians, if you'd like to turn there with me for a moment. First Thessalonians, chapter five. 
No Christian ought to ever say, I don't know what my purpose is. I don't know what my destiny is, right? Purpose is to pursue Christ, knowing that that is your eternal destiny to be just like him. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Apostle is writing to that church there. First Thessalonians was written by Paul about nine to ten years before he wrote Ephesians. And he says in uh, verse 8, I want to pick out the, um, the last clause there. And as a helmet, the hope of salvation. This part of this verse in 1 Thessalonians explains Ephesians 6.17. The helmet is associated with future salvation glory. So Paul is saying that is what you do as you live your life, saints. The things that he's already outlined and then as a helmet, the hope of salvation. It is to be in place. We put it on. He's talking about ultimate salvation. He's talking about glorification. That word hope. And I'll have to always say it because it's so easily misunderstood. Because it can be interpreted meaning something that we think of hope being. uh, When we speak of it in daily talk. I hope it rains. People are cast a, a coin into a fountain and make a wish. Hope is not a wish in the Bible. It is a word that conveys a divine guarantee. The guarantee is this, that our salvation will be completed in the end. It will be consummated. That's what he means. When he says the hope of salvation. That helmet protects us from lies and all the rest that would undercut the reality that, yes, you are going to be fully redeemed. All that God has promised in salvation is going to be yours. Verse 9. Paul continues. He further explains what he just said. For God has not destined us for wrath. Thank God for that. What wrath is he talking about? He is talking about the wrath of God, which is fully expressed or will be in the lake of fire. We are not destined to that. Think about this. We've been destined to reflect the glory of Jesus Christ. We have not been destined for eternal wrath. Now, let me tell you something. That's something to shout about. When you consider the wrath of God is going to exist for eternity for all those who reject him, that is an awful, terrifying reality. And the fact that you've been saved and you're not destined for that wrath that you and I deserve, that is something to give him praise and glory for every day of your life. Instead, we have the hope of salvation. It's guaranteed. No eternal wrath. In that place of darkness, meaninglessness, 
hopelessness, the absence of God's presence and blessing and love, ruined. That's what hell is, a place where people experience ruined, ruined, conscious, eternal ruin, wrath. And we've been saved from that. Our destiny is to reflect Christ. In Ephesians six seventeen, the B portion, we'll call this word. Word. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. In hand-to-hand combat, you know, the Roman soldier had to have a sword with him. He carried it. He placed it on his belt on his right side because he held up a shield in his left hand. And the, the sword was not a huge one. It was a small one measuring between 6 to 18 inches. So he could pull that out with his, and use it to defend himself, fight the enemy that's sailing him. Well, there's a spiritual counterpart We have the sword of the spirit. The word take, we see in the first part of verse 17 applies here. We take it too. We grab it. We grab the helmet of salvation and we grab the sword of the spirit. And it's an offensive weapon. The only one scholars affirm. You notice the text says sword of the spirit. Those three words of the spirit reflect uh, really one word in the original text. Uh, It really means that this sword originated with God. The whole uh, did not originate with us. Second Peter chapter one, verses 20 and 21. uh, Its source is divine. It It has come from God. Sword of the spirit. Since its source is divine, it has certain characteristics. Let me just give you some of the characteristics of this sword that we have, which is the word of God. Let me explain. Number one, it is inerrant. It is without error. That makes utter sense because God can't err, right? Uh, We err. We get things wrong. We do it all the time, every day, right? God's word in the original autographs when they were penned originally by the authors of scripture, the human authors, it was without error that it was inerrant. It is infallible. Meaning the Bible can't mislead you. It will not lead you the wrong way. Thirdly, it's authoritative. That it, it is reliable. You can trust it on all of its pronouncements and all of them, whether it is history, science, geography, whatever. Certainly theology, it is trustworthy. It's authoritative. Let me tell you something. Uh, the, the Bible is authoritative in things that we could not know. For example, uh, how many of us in this room were... Um, we're here uh, on the day of creation. None of you look that old. 
How do we know it happened? How do we know how we got here? How do we know Adam came to be as he did? How do we know these things? Because the word of God tells us God had to do that. How do we know that they're demons? You don't, you've never seen one. You say, well, you don't know who I know. <laughs> now, I'm not talking about a human one. We're talking about uh, <laughs> those supernatural beings. You've never seen the devil. You've never seen a demon. How do you know they exist? Because the word of God tells us authoritative. How do you know there's a heaven? The word of God tells us. How do you know that Christ took your sin and paid for it in full? Because the Bible tells us. And it demonstrates, Christ demonstrated when he was raised from the dead, God's stamp, his receipt. How do we know these things? Because the Bible is authoritative in every pronouncement that it makes. You can rely on it. Not only that, the Bible is sufficient to meet all your spiritual needs including handling our supernatural foes. It's sufficient for your needs. It's enough. Your spiritual problems, the Bible is sufficient. You need guidance in life, the Bible is sufficient. You need comfort, the Bible is sufficient. You need your eyes open to understanding, the Bible is sufficient. You want to know how to navigate the nonsense you hear in the world, the Bible is sufficient. You want to know how to get closer to God? The Bible is sufficient. Whatever you need in your life, the Bible is sufficient to meet that need. Get into it. The problem with some people is they can't experience that because they're not sufficiently involved in the study, the reading, and the meditation of the Word of God. Can I get an amen? amen. Thank you. Now, I'm going to tell you something. Jesus made a pronouncement about God's word. And that pronouncement at once asserts the origin and its character, that is, of the word of God. In John 17, 17, our Lord said this, Your word is truth. Your word is truth. There's another quality of scripture that bears directly on the subject matter in our text about the Bible is this. It is effective. It is effective. Isaiah 55 verses 10 and 11 say this, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. End of quote. In other words, God says, my word will accomplish what I send it to do. Yahweh speaks. So because he said it, it will. It will. Think about it. We all understand that this whole universe came into being because God spoke. He 
And there it was. When he did that, the morning star sang for joy, Job says. Now in our text here, the word, let's, let's look at how the, the sword of spirit is used here. You see, it says, which is the word of God. The, the word for word in the Greek text, so familiar one is logos. That is not the word translated word here in our English text. It is rhema. Rhema is, is a different kind of word. It, what it refers to is individual words and particular statements. The, the writer then is not referring to general knowledge of Scripture, but to particular truths of Scripture. And we see this model for us by our Lord Jesus Christ, don't we? In Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, and Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, we see that Jesus used particular truths to defeat the devil. When our Lord was being tempted in the wilderness, uh, the devil came to him with some particular temptations, and Jesus used the particular truths of Scripture. He used them precisely. He was laser-like in his precision to defeat the devil. Precision, by the way, is key to wielding the sword of the Spirit. In your battle against demonic forces, against temptation, you need to know the particular text that apply to the particular temptation. For example, with Jesus, the devil says, if you are the Son of God. By the way, the if there doesn't mean that he doubted he was using a term that indicated he knew that Jesus was and that Jesus is the Son of God. If you're the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. What did Jesus do in reply? He didn't piously say, the Lord is my shepherd. Uh, that's not in question. The temptation is turn these stones into bread. In defiance of God. What did Jesus say? He quoted a particular text. He was precise. He quoted Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3. And he said man shall not live by bread alone. But by every word rhema. That proceeds out of the mouth of God. A particular. A precise word for a particular temptation. That's how we have to know this book. Another thing, wasn't it wonderful? This is the Son of God. I mean, uh, if it were the divine uh, plan of the Trinity to dismiss that, he could have dismissed him, uh, and he could have gone out, this are going to the lake of fire right then. Jesus didn't do that. Here is God in human flesh. He uses the word of God to defeat the devil. And that's good, because that's what we need to defeat the devil. So it gives us an example. The Holy Spirit, when we use the word of God in our conflicts with the devil, he empowers it. The word of God is his instrument. And he uses it to defeat the enemy. That's how you defeat the devil. That's how you have victory. That's how you stand firm. It's right here in the Bible. These verses. Notice something in our text. You will not find where it says one time that you bind the devil. You would think if binding him was part of our 
arsenal the Holy Spirit has put here. He didn't say that. He doesn't say, rebuke him. I rebuke you, Jesus, in the name of uh, devil, in the name of Jesus. No, he didn't say that. He lays out for us how we do it. And when you do it God's way, you'll have God's victory. If you follow formulas and all this kind of stuff that people suggest, you will lose. Victory is found in just simply submitting to the authority of the word of God. So, this concludes really the description of the weaponry that we use. But we're not finished yet. Y'all indulge me for a few more minutes, can we? Thank you. Your reward will be great in heaven. (laughs) Think about this. Let's imagine something now. This is a war we're engaged in. Imagine that during the U.S. Civil War, soldiers died before the war ended. Think they died not knowing uh, who was going to win. They didn't know who would be the victor. The same could be said for World War II. There are soldiers who fought in that war on our side, and they died, and others on the other side as well. But they couldn't have known who, who was going to win before the tide turned. They didn't know, will Hitler win? Will the Japanese win? We Christian soldiers are not like that. We know the outcome of this battle full well, don't we? For ourselves personally and for the devil and his evil fallen angels, we know their defeat is certain. Their defeat was prophesied by God himself in the immediate aftermath of Adam and Eve's sin. Remember in the Garden of Eden, God came to them and he pronounced judgment upon the serpent. And he pronounced and even announced the first gospel, the first expression of the gospel. He says in Genesis chapter 3, he shall bruise your head, speaking to the serpent. He refers to Jesus Christ, who will destroy Satan with a fatal blow. When did that blow take place? It took place on the cross. Jesus struck that blow. Colossians chapter 2 verse 14. If you'd like to look there for a brief moment. Colossians chapter 2. Verse 15. And you can see what our Lord did. By his work on the cross. Colossians 2.15. It says this. While he's on the cross. (laughs) Which appeared to be Jesus' defeat. Actually he was winning a tremendous victory. He took care of our sins. But he also took care of the evil powers. What the text says. Verse 15. Colossians 2. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities. The rulers and authorities are designations. For the two of the ranks of the demon host. He disarmed them. He disarmed them. That's what he did. There. It says he made a public display of them. The English Standard Version translates it this way. Put them to open shame. The words mean that cross publicly, uh, the cross publicly reveals the failure of the demonic powers to thwart God's plan of salvation through Christ. They couldn't stop it. 
and having triumphed over them through him. God triumphed over them through Christ. This means here, this last sentence, this, the image is of a triumphal Roman military procession. When Rome won a great victory, uh, the general would bring back the defeated warrior and their leader and there would be a procession through the street of Rome and people would see how Rome had conquered another nation. It was a great parade. It was a public spectacle. And that's what God did through Christ on the cross with the demonic host. He triumphed over them. Jesus predicted this, of course, in his ministry. Eve of his crucifixion, John chapter 12, verse 31. He said to his men, the ruler of this world will be cast out. Talking about his crucifixion. John 14, 30, he said, Satan has nothing in me, no sin in me. And he defeated him. Satan is a defeated enemy. He's loose right now, just waiting to be finally sentenced. And he will be. For Satan and the demons, according to Matthew 25, 41, will spend eternity in eternal fire that was prepared for them. What does that mean for us? It means for us in the meantime that we do not fight alone. We're in this fight together. As the body of Christ, as a local assembly, we're in this battle together. We are fighting side by side against our common foe. Think about this. As Christians, as a church, a local assembly, we're all on the same team. To get back to the military metaphor, we're in the same army. We have the same commanding officer. We stand side by side. We're in this together. And together we're to stand firm. It's never good when a military its people fight against one another. You've heard of friendly fire? Don't want to do that. You've heard of uh, fighting against one another in the military? That's not good. We're on the same team and we fight together. Amen. We stand together against our common enemy. And as we do, we'll experience the victory of Christ in our experience in our local assembly for the glory of God in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for your truth uh, that informs us, teaches us, changes us, encourages us. All these things it does for our spiritual good and advancement. We thank you that you've given us uh, the opportunity to open it and learn from it. Lord, I pray for uh, those who are in this place who are not Christ. You bring them to yourself. I pray for those who are here, need a church home where they may join and serve. Stand with their fellow brothers and sisters. Bring them here. 
And we pray these things now in the name of Christ. Amen.